Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. The 122nd running of the Boston Marathon is coming up. It's an event that's bigger than just a race and one with a long history. And what happened on April 15, 2013 is part of the story of that, that history. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski, coming up five years since the marathon bombings. Also, we'll look at how an influx of Somali refugees transformed a soccer team and a town. By accommodating new folks and figuring out what the community as a whole needs, the entire community can benefit. Plus, veterans in Vermont find success in the handcrafted bourbon business. The secret? Their time in the military. The Army literally trained us to do this. Maybe not the bourbon part, um, maybe a little bit. Uh. <laughs> it's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We're going to start with an unusual story of an asylum seeker. A Central American woman who was applying for asylum in Boston is now suing the federal government, saying an immigration official falsified records of a recent appointment. The woman's attorney says she showed up for an asylum interview, answered questions for an hour, and was then marked as not having appeared for the appointment. Reporter Shannon Dooling explains. The asylum seeker, who has not been named publicly, arrived at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Office in Boston on the morning of March 14th for a scheduled appointment. Her attorney, Desmond Fitzgerald, says she went through a series of standard asylum interview questions and, Fitzgerald says, answered to the best of her ability. There were specific questions from the government, like when did you enter the U.S. and when did you file your asylum application? And this is where the interview allegedly derails. Fitzgerald says the immigration officer was unsatisfied with some of his client's responses and asked her for more information. Fitzgerald advised his client she didn't need to provide any additional details. If they felt that she did not provide as complete an answer as they would have liked, they are within their authority to make an adverse decision. They could say, Based upon her responses, we do not want to grant her application. But that's the only authority that they have. Instead, the officer actually filed a note saying the woman didn't appear for the interview at all. And not appearing for a scheduled appointment sets into motion an entire series of actions. That immediately allows her to be put in deportation proceeding. It stops her from being eligible to get a work permit, and she could be taken into custody. Fitzgerald, who's been practicing immigration law for 20 years, says he's never had this happen to a client. In federal court yesterday, Ray Farquhar with the U.S. Attorney's Office pointed to a recent shift in the way asylum officers handle interviews. Since February, Farquhar said, if a person now appears for an asylum interview and doesn't answer questions adequately, then asylum officers may now mark them as a no-show. And this is an important differentiation. 
An individual with a pending asylum application could remain eligible for work authorization. But if an asylum seeker is marked as not showing for an interview, then work authorization is likely no longer an option. A spokesman for U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services said the agency has, quote, not recently implemented any policy changes in reference to people who have showed up at scheduled interviews. It's just yet another of a long, long line of tricks that this administration's pulling in order to prevent legal immigration to the United States. That's Susan Church, a Cambridge-based immigration attorney and past chair of New England's American Immigration Lawyers Association. Church says this is the first time she's heard of this practice by asylum officers, but she finds it alarming. This is a stunningly new and scary policy. You know, generally our asylum officer is actually very um, cooperative with applicants and respectful of them. So I, I can't imagine that this would end up being a largely employed device. The government plans to file a motion to dismiss the case by April 25th. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shannon Dooling in Boston. Police officers have shorter lifespans than the rest of us and are more prone to suicide. But for years, a stoic police culture has made it difficult for many to admit they may struggle with mental health issues. Officers from around Maine are getting some new tools to help them maintain their mental balance given the stressful conditions of their work. As Fred Bever of Maine Public Radio reports, law enforcement and mental health workers in that state are in the vanguard of new efforts to improve the psychological well-being of first responders. Just a warning here, some of the following story may not be suitable for children. A lot of cops will tell you that there's one kind of duty that is just the worst, attending the autopsy of a baby who has died, maybe in an accident, maybe at the hands of an adult. It's not normal to watch somebody cut open an infant. It's not. This detective from central Maine, who asked not to be identified, specializes in crimes against children. I'll, I won't forget the first time because it, it was like, okay, it looked like a doll. Like it was, you know, and it took a couple days for me to realize, like, no, that was a, that was a fleshy human child. It's a haunting experience, she says, compounded by the effects of other investigations from domestic violence to sexual assault to child abuse. Exposure to trauma and a repeated flood of stress hormones are basic working conditions for a detective. But as with many police whose training tells them to project strength, her instinct was to suck it up, to hide any suffering from the world. And they don't realize that you're having a bad day because you can't get an image out of your head or certain smells are making you think of things that you don't want to see. Playing the stoic came at a cost. She gained weight, ate poorly, smoked a lot. She needed surgery for back pain and developed severe ulcers that hospitalized her. At times she found herself gripped by an anger she didn't quite understand. Such are the factors that contribute to making police prone to an earlier death and higher rates of suicide than most Americans. They are so committed to protecting and serving that the idea of showing vulnerability to the population that they're committed to protecting and serving was just not realistic. Jenna Maynard is executive director of the main chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. She says there are many fears that can keep cops from disclosing their mental health challenges, a loss of respect among peers or the public, damage to their careers, maybe even lawyers challenging their competency in court. 
To help struggling officers find professional help, NAMI is organizing a cadre of clinical social workers who are willing to provide officers utmost confidentiality, including an agreement not to respond to subpoenas for clinical notes. And Manich says NAMI's also posted online a list of officers willing to provide confidential peer support for fellow cops struggling with PTSD. Nobody even knows who you've talked to. It's completely confidential. It's obviously not even therapy, but it can be really um, impactful in people's lives, especially for exposure to trauma. And some clinical social workers who want to help are also learning to adjust their practices to accommodate the unique experiences police bring to their offices. For example, I have a policy when uh, clients come to see me, don't bring guns. Uh, my exception are law enforcement. Paul Pinet of Sacco often works with police and is leading NAMI seminars to help colleagues understand that the cumulative effects of stress and exposure to trauma require a different approach to therapy. You have to understand the lens of the experience of this repeated exposure. You become to think that most everybody can be a bad guy. It becomes harder to tell who's a good guy and a bad guy. And some of that is for the purpose of survival, which is really actually kind of useful in understanding that they may always be potentially under threat, even if they're off duty, and understanding that this isn't paranoia. This is a result of the work that they do. For the central Maine detective whose mental and physical health suffered, the road to recovery started with peers and, after a while, formal therapy. And after years of work, she says she's doing well and taking care of herself. Last year, she hiked Mount Katahdin for the first time. Hiked the whole thing, the whole thing, knife's edge. But, you know, i got to tell you, it really made me feel like I could do anything. It really did. I'm doing it again next year. She says support from her department heads was a vital part of her return to health. Experts in and out of law enforcement say a proactive approach by chiefs and the institutions they represent could be the single most important element of improving cops' mental health. That's Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever reporting. Veterans of war have also seen traumatic, difficult things during their deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. But this experience can also be seen as a building block for a career in business, where the mix of discipline and calculated risk-taking needed on the battlefield can give vets an edge. Rebecca Shear introduces us to a group of Vermont veterans who are part of the booming business of craft distilling and how they're giving back to others who've served. In an industrial garage in St. Albans, Steve Gagne uses an electric pump to transfer clear, strong-smelling liquid from a tank to a white oak barrel. All right, so we're opening the valve from the spirit tank to the pump, positioning the nozzle over the barrel, and now we fill for 33 gallons. Open this barrel in a year or two, and you'll taste one of the first batches of bourbon from Danger Close Craft Distilling. Danger Close in the military, when you're calling for artillery, if it's close enough to your position, you tell the folks firing the artillery that these rounds are danger close, meaning those are going to impact very close to our position because the enemy has gotten in so close, etc. Steve Gagne knows the meaning of danger close firsthand. He's a major in the Vermont Army National Guard and served in Iraq and Afghanistan. After returning, he and fellow Army buddy Matt Cahaya started 14th Star Brewing Company in downtown St. Albans. Gagne says a distillery was a logical next step, since the base ingredient for bourbon and whiskey is unfermented beer. And uh, we already have a facility where we can brew world-class beer. 
And so we didn't have to replicate that to create this place. So they brew the unfermented beer, or wort, downtown at 14th Star. And uh, we truck it down here and it goes into our fermenters. And then we can distill the alcohol off from that. The guys produce 6,000 gallons of beer a week at the brewery. They donate proceeds from each batch to local nonprofits, from food kitchens and preschools to veterans organizations like the Josh Pilata Fund, which seeks to raise awareness of traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress disorder and reduce veteran suicide. Uh, Josh deployed with us to Afghanistan in our brigade, uh, and when we came home, he succumbed to uh, uh, TBI and PTSD and took his own life. Now that Danger Close is up and running, the team will support their fellow veterans in a whole new way. Zach Fike is Gagne and Kahaya's newest partner. The three served together in Afghanistan before Fike was wounded by an insurgent rocket attack. As the Purple Heart recipient explains, the Danger Close team will use its experience to teach other veterans about launching and running companies of their own. Part of our business model going into the future is to be able to share that with other veterans. Having them come to our facility, whether it's at the brewery or here at the distillery, learn a trade, give them the confidence to be brave enough to actually take that leap when it comes to starting their own business. Because the way Steve Gagne sees it, veterans are especially suited to be leaders in any industry. They're experts at building and working in teams. They have an iron stomach when it comes to taking risks and they know how to plan an operation. And it literally translates beautifully into business planning. Right now, we're conducting the shaping operation of putting bourbon into barrels. Our decisive operation is going to be that initial launch. The Army literally trained us to do this. Maybe not the bourbon part, um, maybe a little bit. <laughs> Steve Gagne, Zach Fike, and Matt Gahaya aren't just distilling bourbon. They're also working on a rum made with Vermont maple syrup. But, as Gagne and Kahaya point out, with retirement from the military still a few years off, all plans are subject to change. We're also all deployable, so that kind of <laughs> plays a factor. Uh, into we things. might need to take a year break <laughs> <laughs> to, year to do break. some other stuff. In the meantime, these three veterans and friends are living out the motto you'll eventually see emblazoned on their bottles. Keep your friends close and your whiskey danger close. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Rebecca Shear. Coming up, how a soccer team brought a divided New England town together. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. In the early 2000s, Lewiston, Maine was in the midst of an economic downturn. The city of about 36,000 was 96% white, and more than half of the Lewiston families with children under five were living at or below the poverty line. But that all started to change as thousands of Somali refugees began arriving in the city. Over the course of the next decade, 7,000 immigrants from Africa arrived in Lewiston. 
the city wasn't always welcoming to these newcomers. In 2002, Mayor Larry Raymond wrote a letter to the growing Somali community saying that they should tell their friends and families that they should stop coming. In school, Somali students were called racial slurs. Someone wrote on a mirror, go back to Africa. But all this began to change due to an unexpected group, the Lewiston Blue Devils soccer team. The coach of that team, Mike McGraw, discovered that many of the refugees had a talent for soccer. And as they began to join the team and win more games, the city started to accept the presence of this new population. Amy Bass tells this story in a book called One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. Uh, she follows this team as they pursue the state championship for the first time in their history. Amy, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. What drew you to the story in the first place? Well, I've written about politics and sports for a long time. I think that sports are a great place to really get into a lot of the, the thorny sort of touching nerve topics that we have. But this story in particular hit my radar because I'm a graduate of Bates College, and Bates College is in Lewiston, Maine. So Lewiston is always sort of on my radar. And a small news item that a friend posted to Facebook, of all places, caught my attention, and it, it felt like the right story for right now. So, so let's go back to those changes. Uh, as we referenced earlier, uh, Lewiston was in bad economic shape. And all of a sudden, people start coming from, from overseas, and they're, they're coming from a place where they might well have stood out in the population. Why, why were so many Somali refugees coming to the city of Lewiston? So the Lewiston migration is what we call a secondary migration. It's not where they first landed. Um, refugee relocation sites, they're federally dealt with. So a lot of these folks were relocated to the outskirts of Atlanta, Kentucky, Ohio. And some of them didn't like big city life. They were looking for a different kind of community, a community that they could really create. Lewiston fit the bill for them in a lot of ways. This this might feel like a fish-out-of-water story, thinking about Africans in one of the whitest, coldest states in the United States. And yet, Lewiston's own economic situation meant that there was space for these folks. It had good schools. It was a safe city. And it again, it, it had vacancy um, because of its own sort of rearview mirror of a, of a factory town trying to find its, its new identity. Um, this was a place where folks could make community. So many of these stories have happened in towns like Lewiston around New England, where a small population of refugees or migrants from another part of the world comes in and changes the dynamic of the community. But the sheer numbers are, are so important to the story. While the people who have come from Somalia may well have thought this is a good opportunity for them, and Lewiston may have seen them as a good opportunity to revitalize a city, the number 7,000 people into a city of only 36,000, that, that must have led to all kinds of tension as it was happening. I think that change often creates tension, and I, I think that tension and change and hate and embrace, and it's all part of this story. I think that it is absolutely, it, it's such a fast migration, and in, in, you know, per capita, the numbers are sort of astounding. But Lewiston city administrators had been working on stabilizing Lewiston and, and figuring out new paths forward for a long time, you know, re-sort re of positioning where the factory buildings might fit in now that the textile industries were no longer in Lewiston. And I think that having an influx of population was one part of an economic recovery, a social recovery, and a cultural recovery. 
It absolutely has painful moments. Um, it also has moments of coming together. And I think that the competition and, you know, community is not just a statistic. Community is a feeling. And, and these are folks that were planting seeds and laying roots and wanted to stay. And it had been a long time since newcomers had been in Lewiston with these kinds of, of future plans. They wanted to raise their kids and they wanted their kids to raise their kids there. And and this was a new sort of community feeling for Lewiston to experience. It hadn't had this in a really long time. So then let's turn to that that lens that you use of sports to tell about how this community began to come together. And why don't you start with telling us who, who Coach Mike McGraw is? So Mike McGraw is in his fourth decade of coaching soccer at Lewiston High School. He's Lewiston born and bred, uh, played football for Lewiston High School. And one of his one of the things to check off on his to-do list um, was to win a state championship in soccer. Lewiston never had. They'd been uh, they'd been to the final once before in 1991, and with this new set of players, you know, soccer was slowly becoming a a sport that was no longer a back burner sport. It was no longer kids coming on the team because they wanted to get in shape for basketball or they wanted to get in shape for hockey. These players that began to emerge in the 2000s, these were kids who put soccer first. And Mike McGraw saw a new kind of, of coaching opportunity with these, with these new folks on his roster. And what was the challenge that he faced? He had better players, uh, players coming from uh, the Somali community, but there are challenges that go along with that as you're building a winning team essentially out of nowhere. He absolutely, he had to bring his team together. He had to figure out a way to get kids to talk to one another, even if they came from different parts of the world or different parts of Lewiston. He had language and cultural things to accommodate and learn. The athletic director at Lewiston High School is is sort of heroic, I think, in this story because his answer to everything is, we will accommodate. Um, and that means that means a lot of learning. And that means a lot of empathy. So, you know, training athletes who are observing Ramadan, for example, uh, in hot summer months, um, playing summer games or getting ready for fall, the little things and the big things, um, kids who have obligations to family that might be different than anything that they'd experienced before. But he also had to pay attention to the way these kids played the game. And a lot of people talk about Mike McGraw's heart, and his heart is huge. His head's pretty big, too. Um, he was a learner with these kids. He listened and watched how they played. They played a different kind of soccer, and he needed to coach a different kind of soccer. And I think one of the most magnificent things that he does is he is willing to sort of seed some of his, I guess, power and bring in folks from the community. Um, you know, his right-hand person, uh, Coach Abdullahi Abdi, who's really sort of the coach of everyone um, for these kids, coaches the eighth grade team, coaches all the community teams, um, bringing Abdullahi Abdi's son, Abdul Jabbar, on board as the first Somali hired to be an assistant coach. So reaching into the community, learning about the community, partnering with the community, and making sure that these kids, um, that they had the mentors and the support that they needed. It's interesting that this lens of sports to tell stories like this, because we often hear of people who could learn quite a bit from others, uh, whoever those others are, but because it has to do with politics or it has to do with government or even business, they're unwilling to listen. But, but there, it seems as though there's something specific about sports in which the coach has to 
learn if he wants to win. He has to adapt and he has to bring on people whose ideas might be different from his just in the goal of winning. Yeah. And, you know, the kids the kids say something that I think is such a great sort of life lesson to take away from it when when you talk to them about coach or about what it's like to be on this team. And and they're almost dismissive about it in that they say, you know what, coach doesn't care where we're from as long as we pass the ball. You know, and that's their bottom line because that's how they're going to put numbers on that board. And that's what their goal is. So figuring out how to be together, how to how to play together, how to work the ball together down the field, they are they are very conscious that that they're serving as an exemplar for greater parts of the community. Is it a different story if they don't win, if they don't come together to achieve a goal and just come together to play? Well, I think that, you know, there's there's a transformation going on in Lewiston in so many different ways. And one of the, the big things to see, this is a hockey town, right? This has been a hockey town for a long time. This is a state championship winning dynasty hockey town. And instead of there being a fear of soccer replacing hockey, now it's a hockey and soccer town. So now you have both things being played. And I, I think that that's one of those smaller victories, right? That's one of those victories that doesn't have anything to do with the enormous gold ball trophy that, that sits in the trophy case um, for representing state championships in soccer. I think the fact that, you know, the city administrators have to figure out where they still have green space in which kids can play, um, that you see the parking lot of the Androscoggin Coliseum, right, the hockey arena. It's the first thing plowed after a storm. And as soon as that parking lot is plowed, you see kids playing soccer um, in parkas, you know, using snowbanks as the goals. So I think that I think that you do have victories that don't have anything to do with victory. Um, But without question, that state championship game in 2015, when the Lewiston Blue Devils faced the Scarborough Red Storm, that's a significant moment in, in this city's path forward. What are the other ways that the Somali refugee community has transformed Lewiston in your mind, aside from uh, the ways in which it's, it's uh, transformed its sporting life? Well, I think that you just walk down Lisbon Street, which is sort of the main street of Lewiston. And, you know, in the, in the heyday of the textile factories back when Lewiston was called Spindle City, Lisbon Street... Lewiston, it was the largest retail area outside of Boston in New England. Um, And slowly that began to disappear as the factories closed because, you know, workers are shoppers. And when workers are unemployed, they are no longer shoppers. So now you're starting to see that come back. I'm stunned when I walk down Lisbon Street in Lewiston. I'm stunned by the global flavor. It's always been a very French city because of the French-Canadian mill workers. And now it's got all of this other amazing, vibrant stuff, um, you know, halal meat markets and the clothes that are being sold, these little mom and pop shops. They are exactly what Lewiston, I think, hoped for. They just I don't think anyone imagined that this is what it was going to look like. And those sort of mom and pop shops that are supporting the Somali community, you know, selling 40 pound bags of rice and, and bananas that might be a little bit on the green side because it's better, easier to cook with them. That's being accompanied by something like Forage Market, which Savir Magazine, you know, just named the best bagel in North America, right? It's on Lisbon Street in Maine. And, you know, you can get a latte and hang out and and you have that culture there. You have some amazing restaurants emerging. You have business returning. So all of these things um, are, are part of this transformation. And it, 
it's partly the Somali, you know, coming into the city. And it's it's also a lot of hard work in terms of city, the city strategizing and, and figuring things out. Of course, the story, as we say, starts around the early 2000s, a bad time for the city. Uh, it traces through this this migration of people from Somalia, completely transforming the town, and, and it culminates in this victory for the team. Some things have happened uh, in America and certainly in Maine since 2015. Um, the the governor, Paul LePage, uh, who is from Lewiston, uh, has continued to be outspoken uh, in many ways against immigration, uh, very much aligned himself with then-candidate, now-President Donald Trump. And Donald Trump did very well in the 2016 election in and around Lewiston, in the 2nd Congressional District of Maine. Do you sense that anything has changed in town since that time, that this town that came together is maybe starting to fray again a bit? Well, I think that I think that coming together doesn't mean staying together. Uh, community is really hard work, and it that doesn't stop. Community is complicated, and... And there's coming togethers and there's pulling aparts and then and then hopefully there's coming together again. You know, Lewiston experienced something fairly wondrous at that state championship game in, in 2015. 4,500 people were at that game, uh, about 75 percent of which were, were rooting for the Blue Devils. And, and that's community, right? That's not just the mom and dads of, of the kids who are on the field. That's community. That's more people than went to the state championship football game a few weeks later. So they, they know what that feels like, right? They, they know what they want to get back to when there is a pulling apart. So, yes, Lewiston went Republican for the first time in 30 years in the 2016 election. And you see, again, a, a rise of, of incidents, um, hateful incidents in terms of the Muslim community in Lewiston. Um, and then the soccer team wins again in 2017. And you see another coming together around soccer, around other things. I think that the community gets stronger. And as the community gets stronger, the community is able to deal with these things. And I think that's what America writ large is doing right now. But, but, but is there a fear that sports can sometimes paper over those problems? You think of the NFL, for instance. People have long rooted for their favorite NFL players, but then uh, start to dislike or despise those players if they take a knee uh, during the national anthem because they want to make a statement about uh, police brutality in America. It, it seems as though sometimes sports can save a community or bring a community together, but is it always aiming about the right thing? If it's just about winning, is there really an understanding of, of what it means to be a Muslim in America or what it means to be a refugee? No, I don't think that sports can save anything. Um, and I don't think that this soccer team has has saved Lewiston. I do think that this soccer team has shown um, how things can be. And I also think that, that this soccer team is part of a community that's building relationships. And the stronger that those relationships and the connections that they make, you know, the Somali community, when they got to Lewiston, they created their some organizations to create their own support structures. Um, I look at one of the earliest soccer leagues um, for Somali kids in Lewiston was this group called the Somali Bantu Youth Association, which is now uh, Maine Immigrant and Refugee Services. These are the folks that have created an organization that supports citizenship classes, English literacy classes, homework help after school. I mean, it really it's it's a it's a wide range, and it's a group that I I write about a lot in the book. That group has absolutely flourished um, 
in terms of getting stronger and bringing more people in and creating connections and partnering with the state and with different agencies. This group, if you look at where it was when it was first in, you know, 2007, um, being administrated out of the back of a van and holding meetings in a basement and an apartment complex, and now they have three offices and all of these programs and a staff. I think that you can see strength in terms of these kinds of community roots. You know, Coach McGraw talks about the players being seeds, that that they're planting seeds. Um, so some things are going to help them grow and some things aren't. And I think that – I don't think anyone's glossing anything over in Lewiston because I think that Lewiston really knows what it means to roll up your sleeves and try to build a strong community. And is that the thing that it, it can pass along to other New England communities that are maybe looking to to transform themselves? As we mentioned earlier, Lewiston is not the only town that has been struggling because of a, a change in the economy, uh, a town that is overwhelmingly white uh, and overwhelmingly old, as much of New England is. Is there something specific you think from the Lewiston story that the rest of New England can learn? I think that the the best walk away from this is that Lewiston didn't tolerate difference when difference knocked on its door. Lewiston, in many capacities, capitalized on difference. So in terms of the soccer team, Mike McGraw capitalized on the talents of these new players. He capitalized on the community coaches that they brought with him. He they he capitalized on the fact that assistant coach Abdi Jabbar Hersey could yell to players on the field in Somali and Arabic, right, completely baffling the other side. He capitalized on these talents and these these skills. And if you look at the school system and how the school system accommodated having a population come in, a low literacy population, a population that didn't speak English, putting in the structures to help these students. This is a high school that improved its graduation rates while taking in a new population and figuring out how to accommodate a new population. This is a high school that strengthened its student-athlete requirements and now has more kids playing sports and more kids graduating than ever before. So I think that one of the things that Lewiston figured out was that by accommodating new folks and figuring out what the community as a whole needs, the entire community can benefit. The book is called One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. And the author is Amy Bass. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. Visit nextnewengland.org for pictures of the Lewiston Blue Devils and an excerpt from Amy's book. Coming up, the Boston Marathon, five years after the bombing. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. This weekend, the greater Boston area is lacing up for the 122nd running of the Boston Marathon. This year marks five years since two bombs exploded at the finish line, killing three people and injuring dozens more. Alex Ashlock is celebrating 20 years covering the Boston Marathon. He's a producer for WBUR's Here and Now, and he's a runner himself. We talked about the marathon five years later and who he's expecting to see at the finish line. Alex Ashlock, welcome back to Next. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. You're welcome, John. Always great to be on your show. 
What does the Boston Marathon mean to you? Well, you know, this year is my 20th year of covering the Boston Marathon for WBUR, and it's just a great, iconic, historic event. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to move to Boston. It's really my favorite weekend of the year, and the whole city gets excited and uh, race day is just uh, a wonderful celebration of a great sport and uh, great people who participate in it, whether they're running it or the thousands of volunteers surrounding the race or all the spectators who line the course. It's just, it's a tremendous uh, event here in New England. Because you are a runner and you know people in that community from all over the country, if they haven't been to Boston before, what do you tell them that that helps explain why this is different, why this is a different race than the marathon that happens in kind of any town USA? I think it's really the marathon course itself. It, sta- it, it starts out in Hopkinton in rural Massachusetts. You know, it's a point-to-point course, 26.2 miles. It goes through seven or eight different communities along the way. It's downhill at the beginning. Uh, It's uphill at 17 miles, 18 miles, Heartbreak Hill at around 21 miles. It's a course that's really unlike any other marathon course in the world. Many of them are set up as loops, and they're they're set up so people can run fast times on them. The Boston Marathon has just been this same historic route for more than 100 years now, and uh, I think that makes it unique. And I think also... Uh, if you haven't been here uh, and you want to come run, one of the reasons is just the support. Uh, a million people lining the course, you know, cheering you through all these different towns and communities along the way. It's just a, a, a an event that's just really, it's really unique. And it's it's kind of the holy grail for marathoners. People from all over the world try very hard to qualify for Boston. That's another reason it's special. You You have to qualify. You have to run a qualifying time based on your age or gender to get into the race. And even if you do that, sometimes you can't get in because so many people want to run. There's also charities. You can you can run as a member of a charity team raising money, but there's fewer, fewer numbers of people that get to do that. So there, for all those factors, it just makes Boston very special. When the bombs went off at the finish line five years ago, did it change anything about this event, either for you or for the city? I think it just became part of the the fabric of the race, what happened in 2013. It's always there. It's always remembered. Uh, Runners who were here that day and are still involved in the sport and still come to Boston to run the marathon all had their own experiences that day. Thousands of them didn't get to finish the race. Uh, So it's become something that I think is always in the background of the Boston Marathon. It is for me. It's something I think about all, all the time. And every time we get to this point of year when we're about to have the race again, we're always thinking about the anniversary. This is, again, the fifth anniversary of the bombings that happened in 2013. Uh, it doesn't define the race. Uh, I think maybe in the first couple of years, it was really something that was a bigger factor in the race. But now it's something that, that's part of the history of the race. And this is the 122nd running of the Boston Marathon. And what happened on April 15, 2013, is part of the story of that, that history. It was a terrible day. You know, three people were killed. 260 people or more 
were injured very, very badly. More than a dozen people lost limbs. So all that factors in and has factored into every race going forward. And I'm sure, you know, that emotion will be there coming up on uh, Patriots Day uh, Monday. But the races also come back to being a real celebration because in all those other years, except for 2013, that's what it was. And uh, 2013 was one day, you know, along that timeline of history that uh, we, we won't ever forget. But uh, again, it, it doesn't define what the Boston Marathon is. What are some of the stories you're really watching this year, whether they have to do with the the race itself, the anniversary, any of the people who are coming back to to commemorate this? What are the things you're really uh, looking for this year? Well, the anniversary itself is always special. It's Sunday this year, which is the day before the race. The city has turned this day, this anniversary, into something they call One Boston Day. It's become a day of public service. There are neighborhood cleanups, blood drives, food drives. There's a collection of sneakers for the homeless. So the city has turned the anniversary into something that looks forward and uh, offers help uh, to people rather than necessarily looking back at what happened on April 15th, 2013. The city does do that. There's usually a couple of quiet ceremonies on Boylston Street uh, where the bombs exploded. But again, those are very somber, quiet events. Nobody nobody speaks. They're, they're usually uh, Reese Place at the sites of the two bombings. So, so that day, Sunday, will be a day that will be very meaningful to the city. But the thing I'm looking forward to this year uh, is really just the races. There are great, great fields on the men's and women's side. Uh, two Kenyan runners, Jeffrey Kiryu and Edna Kiplagat. They're the defending champions, and they're both back to try to win the race again. There are several other uh, former champions on both the men's and women's sides in the race. Uh, we always talk about the Americans who might have chances to win because in recent years, uh, Americans haven't uh, really been able to, to win the Boston Marathon with the exception of 2014, the year after the bombings when Meb Kaflesi won. But this year, Shalane Flanagan, who's from Marblehead, Massachusetts, she has a very good chance to win the women's race. She's coming off winning the New York Marathon back in uh, November of last year. An American hadn't won that race in decades. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the races, which include the wheelchair races, a big part of the Boston Marathon. We'll see the defending champions in in those races coming back. And uh, I'm just looking forward, really, uh, once we get through the uh, anniversary on Sunday, the anniversary of the bombings, looking forward to uh, the races on Monday. Alex Ashlock is celebrating 20 years of covering the Boston Marathon for WBUR Boston. He's also a producer for Here and Now. Alex, always good to speak to you and, and have fun this week, and it's going to be a great marathon once again. I think so, John. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. While the marathon bombing will always be remembered for the lives lost and the hundreds injured on Boylston Street, for one marathon bombing survivor and one Army veteran, it's created an unexpected legacy. WBUR's sports and society reporter Shira Springer tells us how the bombing changed two young lives and helped bring innovation to trauma medicine. There we go. Army veteran Brandon Corona pulls up his pant leg, rearranges a protective sleeve, 
and twists off the plastic socket on the top of his prosthetic left leg. It's looking good, Brandon. Dr. Matthew Cardi examines the end of the residual limb, poking and prodding the stump that ends about four inches below Corona's knee joint. Dr. Cardi is the director of the Lower Extremity Transplant Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and he likes what he sees. Yeah, this little wrinkled area, mm-hmm. we're going we're gonna to fix that up, but things look really good. All right, things are nice and soft. From a few feet away, Corona's stump appears like any other. But look closely, and you see muscles and tendons moving beneath the skin. It looks like a bag of snakes. It, I mean, it's, it, it's pretty, it's alive. That really excites Dr. Cardi, because what looks like a bag of snakes is actually Corona controlling his leg muscles as if his foot and ankle were still attached. The ability to do that creates new possibilities for Corona and other amputees like him. I have days that I forget that I'm an amputee. Um, even even noticeably now, um, where my phantom foot is is right where it should be. Um, I can feel I can feel my heel. I can feel my toes, and I as I move as I move the limb, I can feel that moving through space. Corona, who's 26, was the second person and the first veteran to undergo what's called a Ewing amputation. During surgery, Dr. Cardi built tendon pulleys near the bottom of Corona's residual limb, on top of what remained of his tibia bone. The pulleys helped preserve the normal signaling between his muscles and his brain, allowing his leg muscles to function the way they naturally would. Paired with a next-generation bionic limb... It feels real. But if not for the Boston Marathon bombing, a Ewing amputation wouldn't have been an option for Corona. To understand why you have to go back to April 15, 2013. Audrey Epstein-Rennie was cheering runners down Boylston Street when the bombs went off. It was something no civilian should ever see, no mom should ever see. Audrey was standing with her daughter Jillian and several other family members in front of the Marathon Sports Store. Various members of our family all sustained minor injuries, but my daughter Jillian was severely injured. The Marathon bombing left Jillian's lower right leg mangled. For days, surgeons at Brigham and Women's Hospital worked furiously to save it, and they did. The weeks that followed were mostly a blur for Audrey and Jillian. But between all the operations, medical tests, and physical therapy, they would find time to watch friends and talk. Talking helped them process what was going on with Jillian. And, Audrey says, We would also just marvel and talk about um, the amazing doctors and nurses who were involved with her care And so the seeds of thinking that we wanted to do something out of our gratitude uh, had been planted. And the Jillian Rennie Stepping Strong Center for Trauma Innovation was born. The center's mission? Change how people think about trauma treatment, amputation, and limb restoration. The goal for patients? Better quality of life after traumatic injuries. Current research projects involve finding better ways to control life-threatening bleeding, improving skin grafts for burn victims with bioactive gel, and developing a portable machine that keeps detached arms and legs alive longer than previously possible. For Dr. Cardi, it helped fund research for what would become the Ewing amputation. And so for us, it was like the perfect amount at the perfect time. Um, I'd like to think that we would have done it anyway, but I think it would have taken longer. Like Jillian Rennie, Brandon Corona's lower leg, his left leg, was mangled by an explosion. It happened two months after the Boston Marathon bombings in Afghanistan. His patrol was hit by an IED. Doctors managed to save his leg, too, 
but all the surgeries left Corona in constant pain. I couldn't walk around the mall without being in pain. I couldn't stay out too late and stand up too long because my leg would hurt. And it was just, it, it was a hindrance to my life. It was a hindrance to everything that I wanted to do. Corona decided it would be best if doctors amputated his lower left leg. He originally scheduled a traditional amputation. That would have left him with a hardened, knotted mass of muscle and tissue at the end of his residual limb. But then he met Dr. Cardi, who explained how a new procedure would let Corona sense his prosthetic foot and ankle in space. When he started to tell me about these pulleys and these muscle bridges that were going to happen in, in my leg. It's like, all right, that kind, kind of sounds cool. Corona is now one of eight patients who have undergone the experimental amputation. Dr. Cardi hopes that's just the beginning. If it only helps like a fraction of a percent of the population, then it adds value for sure to that fraction. But it's way different if you can say this is a better way of doing an amputation, period. I can't say that with confidence yet, but we're getting more and more evidence to suggest that we may be able to say that at some point. This time next year, Brandon Corona and the Rennies will all be on the marathon course. Jillian will be on the sidelines cheering along the Stepping Stone charity team, and Corona plans to be on the team, running. That's Shira Springer reporting. Coming up on next, we're going to ask why so many young people seem to be leaving New England. And we'd like to hear from you. Are you planning on leaving the region soon? Or maybe you just got settled here. Tell us your story. Send a voice recording to next at WNPR.org. Our executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help from Lily Tyson and Ali Oshinsky. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcast, with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwabstone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.